when I was in middle school, being good at math was cool. Some of you are thinking, math was never cool. When did you grow up? But one of the ways that my teachers made mathematical prowess a positive thing was through competition. We used to have something called Math Field Day. And it was this unique event wherein schools from around the county tried to best one another at arithmetic. And so making the Math Field Day team was kind of a big deal. Now, in order to make the team, One had to outperform one's peers on a school-wide exam. And if you could prove yourself true on that exam, you would have the honor of representing your grade at Math Field Day and the chance to become legend. During my fifth grade year, I, I learned about the only Math Field Day legend I remember. And ironically enough, I don't remember his name. The student, though, had taken the qualifying exam in record time and accomplished a 100% score, the first and only in the history of the exam. However, as our best and brightest educators worked with the student to ready him for the competition, it became clear that he was neither the best nor the brightest of students. Yes, the, the boy was intelligent, but less than mediocre with numbers, shall we say. The question began being asked, how then had he earned the right to represent the mighty orange knights of Wellsburg Middle? And the answer? Magic. You see, he'd simply filled out the test, A-B-B-A-C-A-D-A-B-B-A, spelling Abba-Kadabba. Against all odds, his magic trick mirrored the answer key, and he proved himself worthy. Tests are generally designed to see the truth about what you know. Think what we see when God is testing Israel in the book of Exodus, that he is training them in the wilderness. He's testing them to reveal to them their own hearts. He's showing them the truth about themselves. He's using the adverse circumstances of the wilderness to rid them of their idols. You see, despite the signs and wonders done in Egypt, despite the miracle of the Exodus, Israel's song of salvation had quickly turned into sulking, and her gratefulness had soured into grumbling. Indeed, God had taken his people out of Egypt. And now, in the wilderness, he would take Egypt out of his people. In our text today, we will witness Yahweh humbling his people and teaching them to depend solely on him. As we work through this pericope, it will become clear that Israel has no magic trick to help them pass the test of God again and again and again. The people will fail to prove themselves faithful. And again and again and again, though their faith falters, God's loyalty remains steadfast. That's our main idea this morning as it was the last time I spoke to you all, that God does not provide for his people because they are faithful, but because he is faithful. We said that uh, words are hooks to hang ideas on, and so if you want a word to hang the idea, our main idea on, it would be loyalty. God is loyal to us even when we are not loyal to him. Two other words might be bread and rock. So if you're trying to remember uh, this time together throughout the week, you can just do three words. Loyalty, bread, and rock. 
Indeed, we're going to examine a story about bread and a story about a rock, and we're going to see how these stories fit into the book of Exodus, and then how they point us to Jesus Christ. Before we do all that, though, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord Jesus, quiet our minds that we might focus on you, hear from you. Lord, we thank you that you see our hearts to the bottom and love us to the sky. You are so good to us, and we deserve it not. Thank you for the cross. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Moses and the people have spent some time camping at Elim and enjoying some water and springs and all all that good stuff. And Moses and company are given the order to begin to move on. And so they begin to move on. And again, the people begin whining. So if you look at verse 2 of chapter 16, we'll read about this. The entire Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into the wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. The word for complain or grumble here is key. It shows up eight times in the first 12 verses of this chapter in verse 2, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 11, and it has become a word that really describes the people of Israel. We just saw them grumble at Mara when they had bitter water. They complained against the Lord. If you remember, the water was bitter and they couldn't drink it, and so they, they grumbled against Moses. Moses cried out to the Lord. The Lord said, hey, throw this log in there, and I'll make the water sweet, and he met their needs by grace, and then he gave them a law that they could obey to try and show their affection for him. And we talked about last week how Uh, God bringing sweetness out of that which was bitter uh, was an illustration of the cross. How it reminded us that Jesus went into the bitterness of God's wrath that we might enjoy the sweetness of fellowship with God and with his people. So they grumbled there, and if we jog our memories just a little bit, we'll also recall that they grumbled at the Red Sea under Pharaoh, and we're going to see them grumble about their leaders Now, though they are grumbling, we we do well to acknowledge that they have a legitimate need, right? Need food and water to live. Last time it was water, this time it's food. So they do do have a point, right? We we can sympathize uh, just a little bit. I'm sure some of you have been hangry before. Uh, If you're not sure what, what hangry is, it's when you become so hungry that you become angry, right? Pregnant ladies do this a lot, at least my wife did. probably also seen the, the, the Snickers commercials, right? They have that tagline, you're not you when you're hungry. Uh, I think the most famous one is they have that scene from the Brady Bunch, and uh, Marsha Brady has, is substituted for Danny Trejo. He's this guy with really long hair, and he has an axe, and like slams the axe on the table. He's complaining about something, and they're like, Marsha, you're not you. You know, eat this Snickers, and she eats a Snickers, and it cuts away, and it's Marsha Brady again. And that, that line comes up, you're not you when you're hungry. And I think it's comical, right? The commercials are funny. But as I thought about that tagline, I realized that I disagree with it. In fact, I think it is when people are hungry 
or that they lack something they desire, that they are most themselves. See, when, people la- when we lack something, it usually shows us what lies beneath the surface. What I mean to say is this. Israel's physical hunger lets us see their spiritual depravity. They still do not trust God. Complaining and grumbling is a serious sin because it is a manifestation of a distrust in God. It's also one of those sins that we really hate when we see other people doing it. But almost invariably, we approve of when we do it ourselves, right? That's one of those double standard things. If I don't like them, they're a complainer, and then you're like complaining about that person at the same time. Indeed, grumbling is unattractive, and it's sneaky. It's just, it never ceases to amaze me how quickly uh, gratitude can turn into grumbling, how quickly we forget all the blessings of God. We cease to trust him, and we begin complaining. Thanklessness in the face of God's blessing is sin, and it is ugly. I think it's one of the reasons that Paul exhorts us in Philippians 2.14, do everything without grumbling and arguing. It's a life verse for my kids, right? <laughs> we, we actually paraphrase it positively in our house. It's one of my wife's maxims. She always says, obey right away and with a happy heart. I think this is hard for toddlers and for teenagers and for 20-somethings and for those of you that are on the brink or have passed retirement age. It's hard, but it's pleasing to the Lord. And frankly, it makes you more likable. Nobody likes a complainer, right? I think that's one of Paul in context is saying, look at what, in Philippians 2, he's saying, look at what Jesus has done for you. Now live in accord with that. Don't harm your relationship with God and others by grumbling and complaining by being a negative Nancy or a Debbie Downer. Be blameless. Don't grumble like Israel. Hold tightly to the gospel. Live attractive and Christ-like lives so that the knowledge of the glory of the Lord might go forth and cover the earth as the water covers the sea. This is your task, Christian. I wonder, do you obey right away and with a happy heart? People are complaining because they're worried that God cannot meet their needs. And they are bitter because it doesn't seem like he's come through. We've said many times now that worry is thinking that God will get it wrong. And that bitterness is thinking God already got it wrong. And here we see that the people are both bitter and worried. They think that he's got it wrong by taking them out of Egypt and they're longing for Egypt. He got it wrong here. And now we're worried that he doesn't have provision for us. Their distrust is manifesting ultimately as they gripe against Moses and Aaron, which, in fact, as we see in verse 8, the second part of verse 8 and 16, is a griping and a protest against God. This is what we read. The Lord has heard your grumbling, Moses speaking, that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. One commentator writes, an integral aspect to Israel showing that they will walk in the law of the Lord is whether or not they will listen to Moses, whom the Lord has chosen to lead them. 
Israel's attitude towards her leaders expresses her attitude towards God. And so too do our attitudes towards those that God has placed in authority in our lives express our attitudes towards God. So let me ask you, how are you doing at submitting to your leaders? Young adults, children, how are you doing at obeying your parents? Or listening to your teachers in school? Young and old professionals, how are you doing at listening to your leaders and your bosses in the workplace? You complain. Wives, how are you doing at submitting to your husbands? As the church does to Christ. Church member, how are you doing at submitting to the church and her elders? As an elder here, I want to take this opportunity to actually thank you for obeying Hebrews 13 in this regard and making my job a joy. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17, if you don't remember, says this in regards to elders. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Obey them so that they can do this with joy and not with grief or groaning, for that would be unprofitable for you. I'm thankful that you all have resolved to keep me from grief and groaning as I watch over you all. Thank you. Herschel even went the extra mile this week and cut my grass for me while I was gone. It's awesome. I thought it was going to be up to my thigh when I got back. How we submit to those in positions of authority in our lives demonstrates our submission to God. When serving someone God has placed in authority, We need to be those who obey right away with a happy heart. Don't grumble. Now think about Moses' situation here for a moment. Um, He's led the people out of Egypt by the power of God. He's split the sea with his staff by the power of God. He's turned bitter water sweet by the power of God. And now the people act as if God doesn't have the power to provide food. If only we had died in Egypt by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt when we sat by pots of meat and ate all the bread we wanted. Instead, you brought us into this wilderness to make this whole assembly die of hunger. Are you kidding me? Right? If I'm Moses at this point, I'm just going to like, God, kill them and start over with me. I know you're going to have that idea later. This is a great one right now. Let's just be done with it. But, but look at God's mercy in verse 4. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. This way I will test them to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather on other days. Israel is going to call this bread from heaven manna, which in Hebrew actually sounds like the phrase, what is it, right? And they call the bread something that sounds like what is it because they've never seen or tasted anything like this before. The description given in verses 31 through 36 tells us that it was unique enough to be kept to show future generations and it was delicious. Think of like a a Krispy Kreme donut or a Cinnabon. It was actually like good for you on a nutritional level. God is providing food for them. He's giving them manna in the morning and quail at night. Once more, that's quail, not kale. This is uh, not punishment, it's provision. (laughs) But one of the things that's central in Exodus 16 here is this manna, this bread from heaven. God's going to have it cover the ground like frost does in the morning. Can you picture that? Big sheets of this stuff. And then it's going out and and breaking a piece off. 
gathering a, a good bit of it. And that's one of the really neat things is no matter if they gather a bunch or they gather a little, everybody has exactly what they need. God is doing something really supernatural here, really awesome as he meets the needs of the people daily. And if you notice, God did tell Moses that he would use this manna to test the people. And he does this by giving them three really simple rules. He says, don't keep any overnight. Gather double on the sixth day, because on the sixth day it'll keep overnight rather than spoiling in the morning. And then don't gather on the Sabbath, because it is a day of rest. Now, if the people trust God, they will obey him about how to handle the manna. It seems simple enough. God's going to use the food to see if the people's hearts belong to him or their stomachs. And at the end of the day, uh, the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. And so manna wins out and the people fail. Look at verse 20. Some people keep bread overnight and we read that it bred worms and smelled. Therefore Moses was angry with them. And in verse 27 we read, Yet on the seventh day some of the people went out to gather, but they did not find any manna. Why would they disobey such an easy command, Right? I think uh, Douglas Stewart helps us understand this. He writes, Because the schedule for gathering the manna seemed counterintuitive to ancient agrarians. It provided a way of testing Israel to see if they would obey not only those commands that made perfect sense to them, but also those that did not. The same sort of challenge exists today. If people think God demands a behavior that runs against their intuitive sense of what is right, or pleasurable, or reasonable, or just not so bad, sex outside of marriage, for example, it is easy for them not to take the commandment seriously, which, although few realize it, is the same as not taking God seriously. Do you take God seriously? Do you trust and obey him even when you don't understand or when it's hard. We see Israel's trust in God expire as soon as they get hungry and feel as if they are dying. But friends, sometimes loving God by obeying God feels like dying because it is dying. When you obey God, you are dying to self. You're putting to death what belongs to your worldly nature. And you're putting on your true self, which has been made new in Christ. You are denying yourself and following Jesus. It is not an easy following. It is a dangerous calling, and it is often painful. It's so hard for us to stop sinning because we love our sin. I mean, before Christ stepped in and saved us, we were dead, and we were happy to be dead. We, we are like drug addicts who are detoxing. We desire to see clearly and act rightly, but we still crave that which destroys us. But thanks be to God that he does not provide for us because we are perfectly faithful, but because he is perfectly faithful. He forgives our relapses and holds our hands as we work toward becoming in practice what he's declared us to be in Christ. We, we like Israel, are learning daily, moment by moment, to trust and obey God. And daily, he provides for us, even when we fail. And he doesn't do that because we're awesome. He does that because Christ is awesome. Because we are united to the one who never failed and never sinned. That's why he's faithful to us. 
so glad that God has satisfied our spiritual hunger by giving to us the bread of life. Remember in John 6, after Jesus has, fulfilled, has filled the stomachs of the people with physical bread and walked across the water to Capernaum, the people track him down and ask him this question, verse 30 of John 6. You can turn there if you want. We're going to be there a second. But this is what he says, or they ask him. Jesus, what sign then are you going to do so we may see and believe you? What are you going to perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, I assure you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the real bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives his life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. Jesus told them, I am the bread of life. No one who comes to me will ever ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, You've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Jesus says, bread is no big deal. I can give you what you really need, eternal life. And notice what the people do in verses 41 and 42. Verse 41, therefore the Jews started complaining or grumbling. Does this sound familiar a little bit? Started complaining about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They were saying, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Even though the people have seen the signs and wonders performed by Jesus, they refuse to believe. Sure, they'll eat the miracle bread, but they will not trust the miracle worker. Jesus perceives their objection, and he answers them in verse 43. Stop complaining among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that anyone may meet of it, eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. And this teaching is actually why the early church was accused of being cannibalistic early on, right? They're eating flesh and drinking blood, but that's not what Jesus is doing here. Uh, He's not talking about literally eating him. Rather, he's teaching about believing in him as a remedy for spiritual thirst and spiritual hunger. He's saying, I am the one that can give you true satisfaction for your soul. You can see this by the repetition of the word believe in verse 35, 36, and 47. Still, though, this teaching troubles many. Verse 52, at that the Jews argued among themselves. How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, I assure you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. Anyone who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day, because my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood lives in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your fathers ate and they died. 
The one who eats this bread will live forever. The bread that God gives to Israel in the wilderness is to meet their daily need, but it's to do more than that. It points to their ultimate deep need, which is salvation from sin by depending on and trusting in the promise of God. The goal of Jesus' bread miracle wasn't to simply satisfy the hunger of the people, though it did do that. The goal was to teach the people that they had the need that could only be met by him, by God himself. He didn't want to just fill their stomachs for a day. He wanted to fill their souls for all of eternity. God, when he did this miracle in Israel, wasn't just showing them that they could depend on him. He was teaching them that truth, that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. I wonder, what do you live by? What do you depend on? What satisfies your soul? This lesson that true life comes only from Jesus caused many to grumble and complain and turn away from following him then, as we see in verse 66 of John 6. And it still does now. This message that you can only have peace with God and with his people by faith in one man Well, it's not well received in a syncretistic culture such as ours, but it's still true. Jesus is still the way, still the truth, still the life, and it's still true that no one will come to the Father except through him. Friend, if you are here, I urge you, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, to not grumble against this teaching. Don't go away hungry, but please eat the bread of life that has been graciously provided for you. Jesus is the bread that was broken. His body was broken in your place for your sin. He is your substitute. Not only that, he's your sustenance for life. Jesus did not give himself for you, does not give himself to you because you are faithful or because you deserve it or because, hey, you're really generally a good person. No, he gave himself for you and to you because he loves you and he's a God who keeps his promises. Will you receive him? Beginning of Exodus 17, we see that once more the people are on the move and they've made camp, and this time their camp has no water at all, not even bitter water. The people are upset, understandably so, and so we read in verse 2, the people complained to Moses, or grumbled, give us water to drink. Why are you complaining to me, Moses replied to them. Why are you testing the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water and grumbled against Moses. They said, Why did you ever bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The people are murderously angry. I mean, this temporary mutiny is brought on once more by a lack of water, and it's more heated than the incident at Mara, because at least at Mara they had some bitter water to look at. Here, there is no water, no prospect of having their thirst quenched. And so the people test the Lord. And we learn in verse 7, the very last part of it in 17.7 tells us what they were testing the Lord for. The Israelites tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Is the Lord among us or not? This is unbelievable. 
They followed a pillar by day and a cloud by night. They've had manna and quail provided for food. They've had bitter water made sweet. They've been brought through the Red Sea. They've seen the vengeance of the Lord in Egypt. They've seen his signs and wonders. And in an ironic twist, they've become like the Egyptians, refusing to believe. They doubt God and his presence despite his great works. I guess seeing really isn't believing after all. The people are demanding God's provision and doubting his presence. And and I think we do this too, right? Make demands of God about what we think he should do in our lives, our our families, churches, and communities. Friends, we we must learn to wait patiently for the Lord, trusting that he's working on our behalf, that he's for us. I think a lot of the best things in life require waiting, right? Never planted a garden? That, that bad boy doesn't sprout up just overnight. Although with all the rain we've had, maybe. <laughs> but, but typically it takes time. Same thing with children, you know. That's not a one-and-done deal. That's like a lifetime commitment. But in raising children, there are some of the most difficult things and some of the greatest things. Some of you that are parents that have kids that you raise know that that your children bring you some inexpressible joy. That all those sleepless nights, all the dealing with their grumbling and complaining, worth it. God knows more than we do. And it's often when we are sitting and waiting in the cellar of affliction that we learn to taste of God's choicest wines. It's there at the bottom where God meets us in intimacy. God brought Israel into the wilderness to test them and to train them. Likewise, he puts us in wilderness-like situations to test us and to train us for our good and for his glory. I mean, life is really so much easier to understand when we grasp that God's purpose is not our comfort, but his glory. Did you get that? God's not after Israel's comfort here. He's not after your comfort. He's not after my comfort. He's after his glory. That's why we exist. At this point, Israel has decided that if God really is with them, then certainly he would want them to be comfortable. And so they test him. Again, we should see ourselves. I mean, have you ever, after experiencing the work of God in your life, after experiencing his presence turned around moments later, days later, and demanded that he prove himself, made one of those deals, God, if you're really real, fill in the blank. Look at verse 4. Moses cried out to the Lord, what should I do with these people? In a little while they will stone me. If you remember, one of the things we've seen, one of the themes in Exodus, is this intentional ambiguity between Moses and the Lord. Sometimes it's hard to see if it's the Lord speaking or Moses speaking, or if it's the Lord asking or Moses asking, and that's intentional because Moses is this mediator between the people and God. Moses represents God. So let me ask you, what does it say about the people's attitude towards God if they want to kill Moses? Verse 5, the Lord answered Moses, go on ahead of the people. And take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take the staff you struck the Nile with in your hand and go. I'm going to stand there in front of you on the rock 
at Horeb. When you hit the rock, water will come out of it, and the people will drink. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel. God stands on the rock and commands Moses to strike it. The Israelites had asked, how do we know God is with us? Prove yourself, God. How can they know? Well, the rock is struck and it pours out water. We ask, how can we know that God is with us? We demand that he prove himself. How do we know? The rock that was struck pours out living water. This is what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10. Now I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from a spiritual rock that followed them. And that rock was Christ. The rock was struck in the place of the people. It is the grumbling and complaining people that desire to be rid of God's leaders, and I would wager to be rid of God himself, that deserve to be struck. But instead, Jesus is struck in our place. Jesus is struck so that we don't have to be. He is raised so that we can be. He drank the cup of God's wrath so that we could drink his cup of living water by believing in him. He makes this offer to all who will come. He says it this way in John 4, 14, whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never thirst again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. Non-Christian, I urge you to slake your thirst by trusting in Christ. Trust him for your deepest need, peace with God and with his people. Church, as you continue to trust Jesus for your deepest need, do not forget to trust him for your daily need. This is hard, I think, in our country because <laughs> we have so much, right? Our refrigerators are full, our pantries are full, it doesn't seem like we daily need to depend on God for so much. I mean, imagine being in a country where you didn't know where your next meal was going to come from. I mean, the weight of those words. Give us this day our daily bread. Let us live like that, dependent upon God's provision for our daily needs, as well as our deepest needs. Having full confidence that he will provide, not because we are good, we're not. If you think you are good and that you deserve God's blessing, you have not understood the gospel. You're not. You need Jesus Christ. Praise be to the God who doesn't tell us, do, 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 and I will bless you, but says to us, I've done it so that I can bless you. Praise be to the God who does not provide for his people because we are faithful, but because Jesus Christ is ever faithful ever sitting at his right hand, ever living and pleading for you and me. Let's pray. Father, we have done nothing to deserve your loyal, 
never-stopping, unchanging, unmitigated grace and love towards us. Remind us of this fact. Humble us before your throne. Remind us to raise our hands as dependent children and to receive your blessing from you. Father, we ask now for a fresh filling of our glasses that hold that living water. Father, help us to recognize your mercy afresh this day. Help our hearts to soar. Thank you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.